So tonight we're talking about uh, I, the, the interactions and the questions, even getting to walk around and um, getting to just interface on some of this stuff with some of you guys, even talking to some of your counselors and youth pastors. Um, the level of engagement, I think, is, uh, I, would, I would assume for a lot of, in a lot of circumstances, people assume that this generation of students or of high schoolers is just kind of arrogant. And um, they think they know everything and whatever. And, and what I found is kind of the opposite to be true. It's if you're willing to give people difficult things to think about and if you're willing to challenge them and not sugarcoat things and treat them like adults, it, it seems like the response is um, you're willing to hear hard things if it's true. You just are, are kind of sick of being fed a lie. Like you can't, you can't watch TV without knowing who's telling the truth. You can't go to school without people having political pundits and recognizing which one's which. It's, you just have to kind of sort through the BS of everything in your life, right? You're trying to like sift through it. And so I think if you make a commitment to saying, we're going to talk about like this book, uh, I mean, and we could talk about the validity of the documents. We could talk about the historicity of such, and th the Bible hasn't been changed for thousands of years, and the same words that Solomon originally wrote were holding today, and the power and veracity of 23,000 archaeological digs that have been done to verify every word of this Bible. The Smithsonian Institute itself calls it uh, the, the most helpful resource in all of antiquity to tell us where to dig in the ancient Near East. Um, the, uh, the father of modern archaeology, Nelson Glick, says nothing has ever been found that has controverted a single word of the Christian scriptures. Just the 66 books of the Old and the New Testament are the same books that were originally written by the people who said they spoke and saw the resurrected Jesus. And now we, we have throughout generations changed, but the book hasn't changed. And so for so long, people apologized for what it said, and then they tried to dumb it down, and they, they stopped presenting the difficult things of it. And so something that was lost in the middle of that is, is the gospel message. Um, I even like how I had a student ask me today in the dining hall, so you're telling me that if I'm not a child of God, I'm an enemy of God, right? And, and they said they grew up, they're not from anywhere near here, but the idea was they've never heard the idea that anyone could possibly be um, not loved by God. And, and this is a really interesting thing for, for us to understand, okay? And, and I'm telling you this, I teach like pastors, how to be, I, I teach like master's level and doctorate level theology classes, and I have people that are 45 years old who come and interact with this subject and have gone through all of their pre-seminary and everything else like that and still haven't in interacted with these concepts. I think because it's a little bit dead in our culture because it, it is very offensive. And so the fact that you're wrestling with these things, this is the right thing to do. This is, this is the way to do it, is to have these hard conversations now. And tonight will be no different. It will probably be, in some cases, more difficult. But here's the commitment that I want to make to you. And, and here's how I'm going to ask to start. And again, I, I get it. Like, I'm a 35-year-old. I've got five kids. I've got my, my, my wife passed away. I'm, like, trying to figure life out. So, like, I'm not standing here as some sort of, like, perfect authority or, like, I don't have questions about God. Like, you're not going to find someone who has more instances and nights where I put my head on the pillow and just go, like, the heck is going on? Like, how are you good? How is this real? How are these? I, I, I recognize it. But here's what I want to do is, is I want to walk you through the gospel message um, with all of its thorns and thistles and difficulties and high calling as possible. I, I think for especially a lot of us who are guys, when we interact with Jesus, he seems to be so... Um, cordial and polite, 
that we almost think that we would have a difficult time respecting him. And and that's mainly our pastor's fault, people like me who stand in front of people and teach about Jesus, because we've made the call to follow Jesus really simplified. And we almost think that the, the goal that we want is for you to enter into high school as a freshman and come to church, and then if we can just keep you in for four years, then we've done our job. And I know that pressure from being like a youth pastor and everything, and I've gotten to interact with so many of your youth pastors who are teaching really, really good scripture and really, really good Bible. But in, in the wake of that, if you do, what you can find is um, you're going to kind of naturally create this bifurcation and this separation in your groups and even in your cities and even in your towns. That some people, this is what the book of John says, that Jesus came into the world as a light to the world. And when someone sees light, they either run to it because they love the truth of it, right? If, if you're in a room and someone flicks on the light and there's something dangerous in the room or maybe there's mold growing in the corner, Light to one person is salvation because they want to see the problem. They want to see the danger. They want to know what's coming. They want, they want to have a plan against it. And for some people who don't want to adjust their eyes to the light, they just go, turn it off. Turn, you know what I'm talking about? Like at a birthday party or like a sleepover with you and all your buddies, and then someone in the morning or like in the middle of the night turns the light on. You're always like, Bill, shut I don't know why your friend's name is Bill and he's 45. But like, Bill, turn the light off, you know? And, and Jesus says, this is what happens when people interact with him. They're either going to say, I need more of this, or they're going to say, shut it off. But if you don't understand the actual light, you'll think that the the gospel should do one of two things to you. It should either drive you into darkness where you go, forget that. No, don't tell me that. Or it should lead us to go, this is, I finally get it. Like my life finally has cogency. It finally has, it finally makes sense. It's finally in order. And so I, I caution you that if you walk away from here and you're not in one of those two camps, there's probably something you didn't understand. The Bible, the, the Bible is saying this, and you can think the Bible is wrong, but the Bible is separating everyone into one of these two categories. It's saying that the destination of the majority of people who have ever lived and breathed is going to be an enemy of God who, is actively, who God is active right now in his justice against and in his loving long-suffering is waiting and giving people patience. That's what the scripture says. That for those of us in this room who don't know Jesus, every breath you take is him extending like a life raft to you, saying, would you please recognize I didn't have to give you that breath or that breath or that breath. And if you think you're here at Hume Lake on accident, you have to recognize that there's a God who's sovereign over all things, who has brought you here so you could hear this message. Not because of me. I'm a moron. My life's a dumpster fire. It's not about me, but the message you're going to hear tonight is the oldest message in humanity. It hasn't been doctored or changed or manipulated. It's the same as it ever was. It has brought millions of people, let alone billions of people, into the kingdom of God. Tonight, I'm going to present it to you. I'm not going to tell any really big emotional stories. No one's going to be, well, you might be crying, but it won't because of me. But I I just, I don't want to manipulate you. I want to treat you like adults. I want to give you the facts like adults, and I want you to make an adult decision and respond to it. And some of your decision is going to be, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. At least want nothing to do with the real Jesus. For so many people that I've interacted with throughout the years, and even especially at camp, people talk about a Jesus, and they're like, well, I don't want to be... I just don't want a, a God up there who just always wants me to not have fun. I'm like, you, just, you, you don't even know who Jesus is. You've, you've rejected the, not the Jesus of the Bible. You've rejected a Jesus of your own understanding, of your own creation, like Build-A-Bear Jesus, right? You like walk in and you're like, I like Christianity. And you like grab your Build-A-Bear. You're like, love. 
a little bit of fluff. You like lay some love, and you're like, oh, I like this grace thing. And here comes the justice. You're like, no justice in my Build-A-Bear Jesus. <laughs> He's not really perfect. He doesn't see everything. He's not all-knowing. His word and his scripture isn't the final authority in my life. It's an authority. <laughs> it's one of many things I turn to, also Teen Vogue and the Harry Potter series. These are things that guide my life. And so... Um, I can get to heaven, I fully can get to heaven someday and have God go, man, you like, you didn't hold back. You didn't sugarcoat that junk. You told them it like it was. And I'll go, was it too harsh? And if God goes, maybe a little bit, I'll go, all right. I tried to be as clear as possible, but I am not, dang it, gonna get to the gates of heaven and have Jesus go, talk to them like they're big people. Tell them the truth. Let them know the gospel. I just, that's like, you know when you have like those nightmares of different, that's like my nightmare. My nightmare is I'm gonna see Jesus face to face and he's gonna go, you th- I called you to be a messenger of the gospel, not an editor of the gospel. And so as clearly as I can, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to take out your Bibles and to look, um, I-, I want you to see it so you don't just take my word for it. I wanna walk you through the gospel call to, to say, at the end of this message, I'm gonna give you a chance to respond and to say for some of you in the room for the first time, I'm in, I wanna follow Jesus, but I want you to hear what it implies and what it means. So maybe you have historically stood up in a chapel one time because someone got you all worked up and you're like, yay, following Jesus sounds like fun. You probably missed the gospel then because that's not the call. The, the call of the gospel, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when, when the Lord bids a man, when the Lord bids a person, he calls him to come and die. And that's the call that we're going to present to you tonight. And so here's where we're going to start. If you have your Bibles, towards the back of them, Ecclesiastes talks about this so poignantly, but we're going to jump right into it. In uh, chapter 3, which is where we are, uh, Solomon, don't turn here. I want you guys to turn to Romans because I want you guys to see it there. I'll read this passage from Ecclesiastes so you can know the setup coming out of our theme. But Solomon starts talking about the two ends of all things. There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time for war and a time to peace. And then he says, I love this phrase, for God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. So here Solomon is talking about the idea that mankind, we work and we toil and we struggle and we we go throughout our life, and yet it says, but if anything's to be made beautiful of your life, if your life is to have any meaning, it will not be self-derived. It will not be self-achieved. It will, it will not be uh, self-given. It will not be self-identified. Only God can make your life beautiful. When Christ died on the cross, he did not die on the cross because we were lovely. He died on the cross to make us lovely. He didn't die because we were worthy. He died so that we would become worthy. And, and so the, the gospel message is, is summarized in this. I want you to see it with your own eyes I know some of you won't want to engage in this way. I totally understand that. Some of you, you have been living out this gospel for a long time. And so for, for if that's you, I want you in your hearts this whole time to be praying this prayer straight out of the book of Ezekiel. Lord, would you turn hearts of stone to hearts of flesh in this room? Because if the Lord doesn't move, I might as well be speaking to a cemetery because the Holy Spirit alone, the Old Testament says, moves hearts of stone into hearts of flesh ready to receive the gospel. And here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you've ever wondered or asked the question, which comes out of this morning, it's called the sin problem. 
how can, if the standard of heaven is you have to be perfect, and the scriptures indicate from birth you are sinful, that means from birth everyone, everyone missed the cut from their birth, except for Jesus, who was born of a virgin, so that his father's original sin didn't pass on to him. That's why Jesus was born of a virgin, and he didn't have a a human father, because if he did, then the sins of Joseph would have passed on to him. Jesus was born of a virgin, so he didn't even have original sin, and then he lived perfectly, never sinned, never messed up, never lusted, never uh, lashed out in, in irrational or unrighteous anger. He never had a thought that was displeasing to the Father. He lived a perfect life. But you and I, if we're being honest, some of us are going, well, that's not fair. I was born into sin. Friend, be honest with yourself. Was that your only sin you've committed? If you've lied, you're a liar. If you've thought an angry thought, you're a murderer. And the book of James said, if a man stumbles in one part of the law, he is guilty of breaking the whole thing. Which means, on a cosmic scale, the difference between me and Hitler is nothing. Now, on a human scale, it's a lot different, right? It's not like if you ever like, say a bad word, you might as well slaughter a whole people group because it's the same. No. Both of those are rebellion against the perfect God and are worthy of eternal damnation. That's how they're the same. They have remarkably different earthly consequences. God looks at those, ten, those two sins in remarkably different ways. He punishes them in remarkably different ways, but all of it is rebellion against him. So there's no one in this room that could possibly think, well, I would have made it if it wasn't for that original sin problem. Well, man, if I wasn't born of human, I haven't messed up since then. The scripture says this, if you claim to be without sin, you're a liar and you've deceived yourself. But if we confess our sins, Jesus is righteous and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The gospel starts here, Romans chapter one. If you guys have it, I want you to pretend in this moment because group think is a real thing. I, I want you to pretend in this moment it's just you and me in this room and we're having this conversation one-on-one, -on -one, Okay. And you catch me after the, 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 the t -t -t tonight's message, and I forgot to give the gospel. And you said, hey, man, I'm confused. Because this morning you said only perfect people get into heaven. And then you followed that up by saying, and no one is perfect. So is heaven a big old empty space with just Jesus waltzing around going, I wish more people didn't sin so much? Like, what, how? And then, you know, I talk about, I, like, I talk about my wife, Paige, who passed away a few years back. And, um, and she's in heaven. How could you possibly, did you think your wife was perfect? No, friend, I knew. I know she wasn't perfect, right? Like, I lived with her. Um, I wasn't, she, she was beautiful. And she was beautiful. And, and the Lord made her lovely. She wasn't perfect. No, no one is going to kid themselves. And, you know, the only people who think that their spouses are perfect are people who are actually their fiancés and they're not married yet, right? <laughs> is that, I mean, they're so perfect. It's like, friend, Okay, <laughs> marriage is simple. Okay. So how do you get imperfect people into a perfect kingdom while God, who never changes, can't change his character? God's character can't change, which means God is always just. So when, when we say that God is love, when you and I do something loving, it's because we consider two alternatives and we choose love, right? That's why we applaud when people have like 50th year wedding anniversaries because every day they could have, wakened, they could have woken up and chosen 
rejection, chosen abandonment, chosen neglect, chosen divorce. We as humans, we love out of volition, out of choice. And at any moment, I can choose to not love someone because it's not in my nature to love. It is part of my decision I make to love. Jesus doesn't love because he does so out of his own volition. He does so out of his nature. Jesus is loving by nature. But every characteristic of Jesus, he is by his nature. So he doesn't every once in a while, he doesn't like have good days and bad days. Which is why when I finish tonight's conversation and I say, if you are repenting of your sins tonight and turning to God, he will forgive your sins and cleanse you from unrighteousness. I don't have to check in with God before I give a gospel message and go, hey, what kind of day are we having? If, I, if people turn to you tonight, are you like in a good mood? Would you receive them? Would you accept people tonight if they repented and said, Lord, take me? And I want to be one of your children. Would you, is this not a good night? Because this is the last night of camp. I don't have to do that. Do you want to know why? Because what does God do whenever a sinner turns to him in his perfect, unchanging character? The Lord always receives those who are his own. Every time. He doesn't choose to. He does it out of his nature because he loves so deeply. But he can never let go of his justice, holiness, wrath, and perfection in the middle of all that. So how could a God, who if we're sinners and we've rebelled against God, how could you possibly let an imperfect person like me into a perfect kingdom without having to go, ah, uh, I'm going to change the rules. Broken people can now go to heaven. Messed up people can now go to heaven. He must maintain his perfect character. Question is then, what's the solution? How does God maintain his perfect character and yet people like me can be assured of a kingdom of heaven someday with him forever? Romans chapter 1 says this Big number one, small number 18. Make no mistake, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people. Um, forgive me for the poignancy of this doctrine, but it is 100% true. If you have ever heard the idea that God is, is incapable of hate or aberration, you haven't read the Bible. It's not true. Psalm 5, 5, Isaiah 13, over and over and over again. What separates the children of God from those who have rebelled against God, who are the enemies of God, is that God in one sense, having given his son as a love offering, has made a way that all could come and love him. But to think that if you're a child of God, surrendered your life over to him, that he loves you in the same way that other people who may even be sitting in this room have said, forget you, God. I want nothing to do with you. If you think God loves those two people the same right now, you're wrong. One is his child. One he's given his child for to make a way for them to become his children. But if they're not, it's not the same. That's the difference that happens when someone turns their life over to Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. The Spirit now is able to live inside by which we can call out to Him, Abba, Father, and we become His children. If you're not, if you haven't surrendered to God, you are not a child of God. You're not His child. You're not inside His covenant. You're not protected from His wrath. And the only reason that you're able to say with any sort of validity that God loves you is because in his long-suffering and in the, the gifts that he's given all around you, from the air to the trees to the mountains to human-like to your youth pastor to your counselor, he's calling you to himself with every good and perfect gift, saying, I want you to know that there's a better way of living. You're not a mistake. You're not an accident. 
You were made on purpose, by purpose, for a purpose. But if you haven't surrendered your life over to him, you and God aren't good. You are, the book of Genesis tells us, at war with God. And you go, well, I don't feel that way. But you're not the one who's, <laughs> you're the one who rebelled against him. You don't get to tell him whether, what, what your standing is. He is the good judge. Romans 1, the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So Paul begins the gospel message by saying, you must believe that there's something bigger than you. That's where the gospel starts. If you think that the gospel, that salvation's inside of you, like some Oprah Winfrey chakra rose quartz junk, you're super wrong. Pantheism is a lie. It's pagan. Any sort of belief in, in Buddhism or whatever, it's a lie. It's pagan. It's not part of it. It's not, karma doesn't exist. It's not a thing. If it did exist, have you heard of Jesus? The perfect man crucified? How does that work? If karma misses one time, you should let it go the whole time. And I can tell you from someone who's watched someone suffer through the deepest things to come tell me afterwards exactly why both Jesus and my wife and the number of martyrs we've seen throughout the centuries deserve what is coming to them. Let karma go. It's not a thing. Grace is a thing. Love is a thing. But the gospel of Christ says that people have started to adopt new ways of thinking. The New Testament says, Paul is writing and he says, people have turned, to, their itching ears have turned to whatever kind of funny thing tickles their, their personalities at certain times. It makes them feel good, but it says, but that's not the gospel. That's not true. It's like putting a band-aid on cancer. It just covers up the problem. It doesn't do anything about it. So Paul says this, you can't look at the world and think it was an accident. Okay, so it, I, I teach a 16-week-long apologetics class where we go into the deep details of cosmology and astronomy and biogenesis and biology and mathematics to prove that you can show through evidence that there is a God. We don't have time tonight, but if you just use the big numbers, what are the odds that a universe like ours is able to sustain life by chance? It's 1 in 10 to the 60th power raised to the 120th power raised to the 240th power. If you're new to math, anything above 1 in 10 to the 50th power is considered mathematically impossible. And almost any single thing that is necessary for life in our universe to exist, just one single dial, of which mathematicians believe there's about 322 of them, for one single dial, like the force of gravity, to be set so perfectly that life could exist in our universe, the odds of it happening exactly the way it's supposed to by random chance is 1 in 10 to the 60th power. So for just one of the 322 dials to be set by accident for you to be here today, the odds of that one dial being set randomly, that gravity would be perfect, is 1 in 10 to the 60th power. And there's 322 of those dials. So this isn't an accident. You're not an accident. No one thinks that. It's not really rational. The, the people who try to reject that think, well, maybe there's a whole bunch of universes out there, which is a completely... It's, it's a theory that has no backing to it. Some people in the highest forms of, of science believe in a, a theory called panspermia, where aliens from another dimension came and seeded life. Life is so complicated here on Earth, but we won't appeal to God, but we're willing to say that aliens from another dimension came and seeded life on the back of crystals in caves in Africa, and that's where life came from. And at some point, you have to start asking yourself, why are we going to such great lengths to avoid the idea that there's a God? It's because if there's a God, then your life is has meaning. 
and it has purpose. And there is something bigger than just what you want. And so Paul begins by saying, you have to believe in God. And so a lot of us, because we grew up believing in the Easter Bunny or believing in the Tooth Fairy or believing in Santa Claus, you might be sitting in this room and go, well, I believe in God. That's not, you're, you're not even kind of close to the gospel yet. That's just step one. The, you know what the Bible says? You know what the, the Bible says that, do you want to know the, the group in Scripture that believes in God probably with more fervency than you do? Demons. You ask any demon on planet Earth, do you believe in God? They're going to go, yeah, I've seen him. So they're saved? No, because believing or a mental assent that there's a God out there doesn't save anyone. It doesn't do anything. It does not move objects of wrath into objects of love. It does not move enemies into children. That's just where the gospel starts. Then I would have you turn a couple pages to the right. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Romans chapter 3. You might go, cool, I believe in a God out there. What does it matter? Well, here's what matters. God made you on purpose, by purpose, for a purpose. And in the same way that podiums are made to hold, humans were made to give God glory. Humans were made to reflect the image of the perfect God. We were made as image bearers to spread the goodness of God, to tell others of the witness of God. I was made to be literally a little version of who God is so that when I interact with people, they would all go, man, your God's amazing. Your God must be of love and joy and peace and patience because that's what you are. I am a little, like, mirror that when people look at me, I'm supposed to put that mirror at 45 degrees. And my life's not about me. It's all about reflecting God. That's why humans exist. And so the same way that we judge a podium by what its master made it for, we judge ourselves by how good of a job we are doing at why we were made, which is to give God glory. Well, the book of Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says this, we've all biffed it. No one is doing a good job of doing this. Romans 3 verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Where's Lorelai? Right there. How many good people are in this room? Zero. You're not good. 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 And if I said, why are you a good person? You would refer to whoever has done something a little bit more egregious in life and say, I might not be a I might not be perfect, but at least I'm not them. And then they would go, well, I'm not perfect, but what about them? And the adulterer points at the murderer, and the murderer points at the genocidal maniac. And at the end of the day, we all point to one guy named Hitler. And we all go, well, at least I'm not Hitler. Do you think that the guest list to heaven is just not Hitler? <laughs> like everyone's names in the Lamb's Book of Life, Jesus came and died on a cross so that everyone could be saved minus Hitler? Hitler's not even the most egregious person in history. He's just the most famous, ridiculously obtrusive, re genocidal maniac. He's, he hasn't even done the most. He's just our favorite person to turn to. So the scripture says, God doesn't grave on a curve in terms of morality. There is no one right with God. That's what the word righteous means. No one is right with God. We are naturally enemies of God. And if you don't do something... If you don't change the fact that you're God's enemy, you will die as his enemy and you will experience eternity separated from him where everyone who is his enemy goes. And you think to yourself, that's not cool. If God's a God of love, he would not have a place called hell and he wouldn't send people there. This is always one of the most interesting things that I get asked if I'm at a debate or a public setting or Q&A or a forum. People go, well, I just would never believe in a God who sends people to hell. And I said, are you, so you're not a believer? Uh-uh. So you want nothing to do with Jesus? No, not at all. 
Okay, what if you were to pray to God and God said, what do you want to do for the rest of eternity? Would you like to be with me or would you like to not be with me? I don't want to be with you. What if at the end of the day, God just gives everyone exactly what they asked for? How is that not loving? What do you want? I want to be with God. Well, there's a place called heaven. You're going to enjoy this forever. What do you want? I want nothing to do with God. Okay. Hell is just a place where God is not. Then when you talk about hell, we have all these like old pictures or these cartoons like where Satan's running around like, ha ha, look at my leather outfit. And he's like poking people, you know, Hitler's there all the time. And it's like, he's like, I'm Minuten bitte or whatever he says. Just a minute. And like everyone's, everything's on fire. It's, Satan loves that you think that about hell because it's a cartoon because it's, re- it's ridiculous. It's unrealistic. And we just go and think like, you think God is sitting there like lighting a flame under people for all of eternity? This is the truth. Every good and perfect gift comes down from God. Every good and perfect gift, which means you've never breathed without it being a gift from God. You've never laughed without being a gift from God. You don't have family without it being a gift from God. Every good and perfect gift that you've ever experienced is God's presence in your life. Everything is. And the reason you experience it is because God is literally sending at all times a message to you to say, don't you know that I love you? Don't you understand there's more to life than this? So when you look around and you go, I want nothing to do with God. I want to be just like I am. I want to have fun, and I want to do whatever I want, and I want to have pleasure. I want to eat good food. I want to be of sound mind. I want to be comfortable. Those are all things we borrow from the king. So what is hell? Imagine all the things we borrow from the king we can no longer borrow. What if hell is just a place where God refuses to put the elements of his character and of his grace? What would it be? No joy. No soundness of mind. No light. No reason, no understanding, no laughter, no comfort. Nothing about his character would be there. I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like hell to me. So don't make it too cartoonified. It's ultimately God just looking at everyone in the eye and cementing them in their ultimate position based on their worldly position. If you want nothing to do with God, there's a place for that where he isn't. If you want everything to do with God, I've got good news for you. He's made a way for you to become a child. But of our own accord, there was no one righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Keep flipping with me to Romans chapter 6, a few pages to the right. Look at this for yourself. Verse 23. It says this. Romans 3.10 says that all men, all mankind are sinners. Everyone who's ever lived is a sinner. And you might go, what does that matter? Well, here's the reason that that's important. The wages of sin is hell. And in your Bible, it says death, right? The wages of sin is death. But to a, to a Jewish mind and to a Greek mind, th- th- God's never really talking about you're dying a physical death, right? He's talking about an eternal death. When, in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This, this Greco-Roman mindset, this Jewish mindset, no one thought that obliteration took place after death. No one thought that death was the end. The differentiating factor in John 3.16 is that all people, not just Jews, but anyone who calls in the name of Jesus can have eternal life. John 10.10. 10. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Even though the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So when the scripture here is saying the wages of sin is death, 
it, it, the way that we would understand that is he's saying the punishment or the earning that our sin and our rebellion has earned us is an eternally separated from God. We've lived with our actions that want nothing to do with God. We have spoken with our lips that want nothing to do with God. And so God cements us in that position for all of eternity. Then you will have nothing to do with me. You can't really then put God on trial and go, how could you give people what they ask for? How is that love? That's an interesting comment. That seems like exactly what you would expect someone to do if you called them loving. Wouldn't you expect them to respond to what you're asking them to do? I want nothing to do with you. There you go. So it's a, it's a strange trial to put God on. In, in all honesty. Then, we're, we find ourselves then in this courtroom that's um, pretty uh, dark, right? Um, God's presence is plain to them, Romans chapter 1. But there is no one righteous, not even one. And the unrighteousness that we have all committed has earned us hell. And no one gets in heaven unless they're perfect. And this is where humanity found itself until God is announcing the sentence of you and me in a courtroom, and you and I are standing trial, and the case laid out against us, and just imagine if someone played a reel of your life and every sin you've ever committed, and not just the sins that people know about, the sins they don't know about, and the, just think if someone played a reel of the thoughts you've had in the last 24 hours. Just we were able to magnify it on the screen, and we were able to play it in real time, and we were all, all able to watch a reel of every thought you've had. You might have been able to trick people because you only let certain ideas out of your mouth or out of your behavior, but you and I both know your mind is a messed up place. In scripture, what Jesus says is you're guilty for what you do in here, just like you're guilty for what you say with this, just like you're guilty what you do with these. Jesus says if a man hates someone in his heart, he's committed a murder against them. He aligns the thought with the intent, with the action, with the word, all in alignment. And as we stand trial, we start to look at that. And all God would need in order to send us appropriately to hell forever is just for the very first sin to say he was born of man. He has, he has participated in the rebellion by his own DNA. But if we're being honest, it wouldn't, start, it, wouldn't start, it wouldn't stop there, would it? It would just be boom, 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 boom. And we would cry out mercy like, God, just stop. Stop. I get it. And God upholding his perfect justice would have the gavel in hand and he would say, I told you that rebellion against me is going to cost you everything. I'm a just God. I made everything perfect. And then you guys rebelled against me in thought, word, action, and attitude. And as you have done such, I must uphold my perfect righteousness. I can't change the standard for heaven just because you chose to rebel against me. And as he goes to put the hammer down and pronounce the eternal sentence against us, his son stands up in the courtroom, and he says, I've got a plan. Now, I'm illustrating this because it was actually the will of the Father, Isaiah 53 says, to crush the Son to be in my place. But Jesus stands up, and he says, they owe you their life, don't they? And God says, that's how I uphold my perfect character. I am owed a perfect life, and they didn't give that to me. They failed they took out their hands and they stole the fruit of the tree. They robbed from the tree and they robbed from me. And their hands extended, grabbed that. And in doing so, it has pierced all of humanity. And they've got thorns and thistles was their curse. And I told them that the snake was going to grab their heel and it was going to strike them. And this is the curse. And Jesus says, what if I became the curse? 
what if instead of Chris Hilkin having to pay his own punishment, what if I became the curse and you punished me instead? Wouldn't that perfectly allow you to uphold your justice, but in your love, let them free and take me instead? So what is the cross? We stole from the tree, so the father puts him back on the tree. We stole with our hands, and his hands are pierced. The snake bites our heel, his feet are pierced. Who was standing next to him? Mankind was watching as Eve ate of the fruit, and his side is pierced. And out of the ground come thorns and thistles and the heaviness of work, and Jesus has a crown of thorns laid on his head. He became the curse. How come I can get saved? How, come I, how, come, how can I become perfect? How could God treat a murderer like his son? Because God first had to treat his son like a murderer. The New Testament says, cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. And that's what Jesus became. He became the curse for you. He became the curse for me. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became sin who never sinned so that you and I could become his righteousness. You see, when you turn your life over to God and you surrender to him, God doesn't look at your sin and go, uh, I'll give you a governmental pardon, or that's it. I guess I won't bother with that anymore. That's not justice. God says, you're guilty, but if you surrender to me, I'm gonna take the guilt that you've deserved and the curse that is meant for you and the hell that you should go to, and I'm gonna throw it on Jesus. And on the cross, Isaiah 53 says, he was smitten, stricken, and afflicted, and by his stripes, I have become healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned from our own way, but the Lord has laid on the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all, for it was the will of the Lord to crush the Son. Why? Because in order to treat this man like a son, he had to treat his son like this man. And he did the same for you. But there are those of us who will stand at the gates of heaven and say, I'm not kidding. I don't want that trade. I'll stand before the judge myself. And I'm pleading with you on behalf of the gospel to make the trade tonight. Because what holds us back is this, this innate pride of a world that has told you that you're the center of it. And I promise you, it will be the core of all of the pain in your life. It's just not who you're meant to be. The question, I got to talk to my son about this today. He was listening to me this morning. And my son Brady said, he said, I cried during your message today because I'm not a perfect person, so how am I gonna get into heaven? And I got to read this to him. I got to tell him the gospel. And then his question to me was so simple. Why? Romans 5 verse 8 says this. God demonstrates his love for us in this. Where you see the word us in that passage, when I read it, I want you to say your own name. You don't need to say it out loud. If you want to, you can. But you've got to make sure that you understand God didn't die for the corporate y'all. He died for you. Because if you surrender your life to him, 
when he died on the cross, knowing all things, your sin was pinned to the king when he died. He had to have known and taken your sin because he paid for it. He didn't just demonstrate his love for all of us. He demonstrated his love for you. Read this in your heart and recognize the why behind this trade. But God demonstrates his own love for Christopher in this. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. The question simply then is, you might be recognizing it. You might be saying, I get it. I, how, what am I supposed to do in response to these things? I want in. I recognize it. His love paid the price for me. He, I want the trade. You take my brokenness. I'll take your perfection. What do I do? Romans 10 verses 9 through 10 says this. A few pages to your right. Turn with me. Last time we're going to have to turn. Romans chapter 10. Beginning at verse 9. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why does this matter? These two aspects of salvation are important. The first one is the recognition that you need to have in your heart that says, I believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, we're not saying, do you believe in God? Demons believe in God. The question is, do you believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sins? The second part is, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that word Lord in the, in the, in the original language, kurios, means master. Do you recognize that because of what God has done for you and because of what Jesus has laid on the cross for you, that he is now king of your life? It's the idea of lordship. He is now in charge of it all. And you surrender not just your sin over to him, but your life over to him. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised from the dead, you will be saved. You guys see the parenthetical in the middle of there, though, that says who gets to respond to this? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you haven't done too many things wrong in your life, is that what yours says? No. If you confess your mouth to Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, and you've got everything in your life figured out, and you're never going to sin again, you will be saved. Does your say that? There's no caveat. There's no exceptional group. There's no entitled few. There's no exceptional anything. There is no parenthetical. There is no elite crew. There is anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How come I can stand up here and say that if you contritely repent of your sins and turn to Christ, you'll be saved because he's a God of infinitely unchanging character. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. He doesn't have bad days. He only has days where he's been calling out to you for 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, some of you counselors, 22, 23, 24 years. There's not a day that's gone by. We've been talking a lot about this conversation this week, about who God is. But the way that you move from an object of wrath into an, an object of his love is you surrender your life. This is how imperfect people get into a perfect kingdom. Because when I get to heaven someday, Jesus says, get behind me. What do you mean? He says, Jesus is going to stand trial at my trial. The father's going to say, Chris Hilkin, you're up. 
and I'm going to hide behind Jesus. This is what the word atonement means. It means covering. I'm going to go, <laughs> judge him. It's my name, but judge this guy. And the father's going to look at the son and go, come to me. Come in and find rest. You are my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. You are perfect with no fault on your record. And Jesus is going to go, because of the cross, you're in. We get in because the king vouches for us. His death on the cross vouches for you and me. Jesus said, I paid this, guys. I paid this, girls. That's the gospel. The gospel is giving your sin to Jesus and him giving his perfection to you. That's how God can maintain his perfect character of justice. While motivated by his love, he can call sinners to himself. It's how his enemies can become his children. I'm going to give you a chance to respond to that right now. And I'm going to pray for us. And if you want to make that, say that prayer for the first time, um, I'm going to ask you to pray that prayer along with me in your hearts. And then here's what I'm going to do at the end of that prayer. If for the first time you go, I've never made that trade. I've never surrendered my life over to Jesus. I've never understood what that meant, but I want that tonight. And I want to say, Lord, you're the king of my life. I believe that your death paid the price for my sins. After the prayer, I'm going to count to three and I'm going to ask you to stand up if you've done that for the first time. Why am I going to ask you to stand up? It's for one reason and one reason only. If you can't stand in a Christian chapel at a Christian camp in front of a Christian pastor surrounded by Christian people amongst your Christian youth pastors in a Christian sound booth and Christian worship music, Christian pianos, you're not going to do it when you go home. And your faith is not a private faith. It's a personal faith. I can't faith for you, or I would. If I could believe for you, I would. If I could repent for you, I would. If I could get baptized for you, I would. But I can't. You've got to do it. But part of walking in this Christian life is that we walk in it together. So when you stand, you're saying, I'm part of this movement now. I call him father, who I've only ever known as distant. And he calls me son, and he calls me daughter. Would you pray with me? Lord, for some of us in here, you've been calling, you've been chasing us down. I love the way that this scripture puts it. There's not a moment where we haven't been in your thoughts. You've chased us down in thought word. You've chased us down by the historical movement of your church. You've chased us down by the gift of the local church. You've chased us down by whoever invited us to be here. You've chased us down by the gospel. You've chased us down by your word. You've chased us down by anyone who gave money to scholarship or someone could be here. You've been pursuing us for more than a decade for most of us. And for some of us, Lord, we want to turn to you back for the first time and say, I have sinned against you in everything that I've done. Lord, I've rebelled against you in every part of who I am. And Lord, for those of us who want to make that trade for the first time tonight, to receive what you've done for us on the cross, God, we're gonna pray together in our heart to you right now. If that's you, pray this prayer along with me in your hearts. Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against you in everything that I've done. From the moment I was born, every lustful thought I've had, every broken thought I've had, every messed up thought I've had, everything that I've inside my mind, outside of my mind, every sin I've committed, everything that I've, you've called me to do that was good that I've just omitted. Everything that I have done and every good that I've left undone has been in direct rebellion against you. I have looked towards things of this world to satisfy me when you can only satisfy me. I've chased fake things instead of the realness of who you are. I'm guilty. God, if I stood in front of you 
in your perfect kingdom, I would be guilty of everything. But God, I also believe that when you died on the cross, you took away the penalty for my sin. Not that it was just expunged from my record, but that you put it on Jesus. And Jesus, I don't know why you would be willing to die in my place, but your scripture tells me that it was motivated by your love for me. And I've never known a love like that before. And I've never known a dad like that before. And I've never known a grace like that before. But if your word is to be believed and you're a man of your word and what you say is true, then I'm giving my life to you tonight. God, I'm still gonna mess up. I'm still gonna go back to old habits. And I'm still gonna say things that are dumb and think things that are messed up but I believe that from now on I'm going to do so as a child of you and I want to get rid of those things in my life and, and I know I'll spend the rest of my life trying to figure out what it means to walk with you but Lord tonight I take that first step of conversion saying I'm done with my old way of being I receive your gift of the cross and I give you my sin in this dramatic cosmic trade that you have made because of your death, burial, and your resurrection where you proved that you've got the power to make dead things live again. And I'm calling on that power in my life in repentance to say, Lord, when I die, I trust that you will bring me to your kingdom because you tell us in John chapter 11, you tell us in John chapter 14 that wherever you are, you want us to be with you too. So God, I give you everything. I give you my life. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. If for the first time tonight you've said that prayer, I'm going to ask you boldly to stand up on the count of three. One, two, three. Stand up. can sit down it's um it goes against everything in culture to stand against the tide of what this world is throwing at you and for those of you who stood up or, or maybe some of you are, you're still wrestling with all these things what we're going to do is we're going to close out this time with a, a worship song just in response of god's goodness the song's called living hope it just tells the story of the gospel listen for it it's the story of the gospel put in song form but then here's what we're going to do after that we're gonna keep this space open and we're gonna ask everyone else to leave after this song in a discipline of silence. And if you've got more questions or if you stood up or if you wanted to stand up but there's something that you, we ask you, this place is just gonna stay available to you to interact, to ask questions from counselors, from youth pastors and everything, just to, to do real business with God. That's, that's the reason we all came up here. So I'm gonna introduce us into a time of worship through music. So I'm gonna ask you guys all to stand with me and give God the proper praise for what he's done tonight. Through the shadows of my soul 
broken every chain, that there is salvation in your name. God, there's no greater gift than the gift of getting to say that we are yours. There's no greater gift than the gift of being able to say that you have died in our place, that we can stand before you 
justified by the work of Jesus. We praise you tonight for that gift, God. I pray for those of us who made a decision for the first time tonight, Lord, that this truth would sink deeper and deeper into their hearts. And for those of us in this room who maybe have heard that news time and time again, God, I pray that we would really hear it tonight. That we wouldn't take for granted the gift of being yours. And for those in this room who feel like they're still wondering, still trying to figure things out, God, I pray you'd meet them there. That they would feel you meeting them even in their uncertainty and confusion. God, you're so good to us. We love you in Jesus' name.